Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rode and rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came in, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all, the de- all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. morning. If uh, you saw some unfamiliar faces up here, it's because we have our college students leading a lot of the elements today. And so we're very thankful that they're back with us. And traditionally, or we have done this in the past, two Sundays in the summer, uh, they participate, us, participate with us in the leading of these elements. So we saw them singing, praying, reading scripture, and things like that. And so this is a joyful time for us to share uh, in worship with you all, and at this time, we're going to go and open up God's word. So please pray with me as we begin. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of shoal laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguished. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord 
in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. O God, we know that when we called out, you heard our cry for mercy. And so, Lord, we thank you. And with this heart of thanksgiving, we now ask that you would open up our hearts so that we can hear your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we went over uh, the calling of Matthew, and today we're going to finish up that last bun in the Big Mac. And uh, these sections are sectioned down on purpose. We saw the first discourse, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and then we have Jesus' authority. And so we saw Jesus exercising his authority, then the cost of discipleship, and then Jesus exercising his authority, then the cost of discipleship or discipleship and the calling of Matthew, and then we have that final bun which is like the Big Mac, which is this one section before the second discourse comes in the bottom of this chapter going on to chapter 10 and 11. And uh, if this is a crescendo, then you're going to start to think, wow, this, this, all this is happening. Jesus is now revealing himself to the people that he is walking in, uh, in the towns that he's walking in, and the people that he is seeing. And so after he does this uh, zoom in with the disciples, now it says in verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, meaning, whoa, look, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Of all the gospels, Matthew records the least amount of details in the events that occur The story of the synagogue ruler that we see here is present in all the synoptic gospels, all the synoptic gospels meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke. And to give you a comparison, this particular story, Matthew has nine verses compared to Mark, which has 23 verses. So we know that this is the same story of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they all talk about the ruler's daughter and right in between we see the woman with the hemorrhaging. And so every single one of these stories are told exactly in that manner. But it seems as though Matthew is now leaving out all this extra detail to focus on certain elements for teaching that Jesus is doing. Matthew gets straight to the point. And so when we read this, we're not to miss the point. Every time you read this, it's like, it's straight to the point. What's the point? And so I hope that we can continue to see and God will open your eyes to be able to listen to what the word of the Lord is saying. Ruler or synagogue ruler, or if you read in Luke, it's Jairus, comes to Jesus, kneels before him and asks Jesus to come revive his daughter. And in verse 19 it says, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. There's no conversation, no discussion. He just simply got up and follow the man. And as Jesus went up to follow this ruler, this synagogue ruler or Jairus, behold, again, look, watch, a woman 
who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Like I said, every synoptic gospel that is telling this story always has it in this order. The ruler, the hemorrhaging woman, and then finally the, the, you know, the, the, the revival of um, the raising of the daughter. This is why we're not supposed to split these stories apart. You're supposed to tell it the way it was meant to be told, and there are reasons for that. And it's really exciting when we get into it. And we don't just start picking and choosing what we want to talk about. And so, behold, meaning anytime there's a behold, there was a trajectory and boom, there's a stop. And there's kind of a change of course or trajectory. Or this course or trajectory has now been interrupted. Every time Matthew says, behold. Behold, a woman with a bleeding disorder suffered for 12 years. Whether it was... uh, hemophilia or the von Willebrand disease or some other kind of disease we not we're not exactly sure but we know for sure that there is no way this woman was living a good life continuous loss of blood would make you tired constantly with low levels of energy and if there's menstrual pain involved there's also that pain and you would have been very limited in what you could do on a daily basis, and you would be assured that you would live a reduced quality of life because of it. But not just because of the physical ramifications of this disease. There would have been social implications added already to the physical malady that was inserted in her life. She would have been considered, according to Leviticus chapter 15, unclean. Any kind of bodily discharge in Leviticus chapter 15 was considered unclean. It made the person unclean. And we know uh, the reasons perhaps why it was ceremonially unclean. But in Leviticus chapter 15, these specific verses are, are written. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, All the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. So, In Levitical law, not only would the person with the discharge be unclean, but everything they touched would also be considered unclean. It's kind of sort of the reverse Midas touch. And it's ironic. I I, I was thinking about this. It's ironic that we call someone successful as someone who has the Midas touch because every kid grows up learning about King Midas and his touch was actually a curse and it was a story to watch out for greed. So I find that ironic. Now, if you want to say something good, someone's in finance and someone's making a lot of money, oh, you have the Midas touch. So that's weird. Uh, the, in reality, the Midas touch was a curse. But you can imagine everything that this woman would not touch 12 years is a hard time. Is it, would, you had a very, very difficult time to hold it so, or to keep a secret. So 
you can imagine all of the community would be aware of this and they would know. And this is the predicament this woman is in. In Luke and Mark, there are more details given. Matthew doesn't give it, so we won't go too much into that. But what this woman does is is important. That's why Matthew records it. This woman decides to go and touch the fringe of Jesus' garment. Why? And in verse 21 it says, For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. You know, there seems to be an element of superstition here mingled with faith in this woman, but Jesus does not reject her. In the other synoptics, we see that she did everything that she could to be cured, only to be met with failure. And when she sees Jesus, and it's seemingly out of pure desperation, she decides that if only she would touch the hem of his robe, the fringe of his garment, she would be healed. And so she does this. And Jesus turns in verse 22, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. By turning to her, Jesus does at least two things. Number one, he reinstates her back into the community. Just like he did with the leper in chapter 8 when he told him to go show himself to the priest. All the community would have known that she was unclean, but with Jesus declaring publicly that she is well, the community would have also seen that she was no longer unclean. But there's something even more bigger. Number two, Jesus teaches her. He teaches her by first encouraging her, by turning to her and, say, and saying, and says, um, take heart, daughter. This is a very tender address. You can imagine before this person could not have lived in any sense a normal, healthy, social life. But Jesus turns to her and speaks these tender words of encouragement. Take heart, daughter. And he teaches her also by teaching her about what it was that's important. He goes, your faith has made you well. It's important that she knew that she wasn't cured by some mystic art or magic or some regimen that she did or some kind of action that happened her cure rested in the mighty power of Jesus it was your faith meaning your trust in Jesus your trust in Jesus has made you well you know the interesting part here is that the word well is synonymous with the word salvation it's the same Greek word that Matthew uses in the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel goes to Joseph and he goes, You will name him Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save. That's the same word. He will save his people from their sins. And he goes, Your faith has made you saved. Faith is linked to your salvation. Faith meaning trust in Jesus. And instantly, the woman was made well. Again, it's not some ritual or procedure that you would follow that saves. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ that you are saved. There is no merit that you could accomplish that could save you. If there was, 
then you would have no need for Jesus. And in fact, this is how many people live in the world today. This is incredibly sad for me to always share. If I do share it, I was sharing uh, because I spoke at a, a certain event and this older gentleman came up to me and said, I know I'm going to go to heaven. I just out of the blue, I don't know why, but uh, so I know I'm going to go to heaven because I'm basically a good person. I'm basically a good person. And I said, no, it's not. It's only faith in Jesus Christ. It's, yes, 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 of course it's by faith. But I try. This is what he said to me. But I try, and God will understand. I wasn't perfect, but I was basically a good person. I never cheated anyone in business. And then what was fascinating was he went down a list of things that he didn't do that made him worse than the other people he dealt with. My friends, you don't get to draw the line of who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. You don't go of this spectrum of morality. I'm here, and so I'm going to draw the line of this is basically good going this way. You don't draw that line. You know who draws that line? It's God who draws the line. It's God who dictates who gets into his heaven by his standards. You know what's most sad was that this person went to church all their life. It was infuriating, but at the same time, incredibly saddening. Why are people going to church all their lives and they don't get to hear or they don't know the gospel? And Jesus here is teaching this woman, hey, it's your faith that made you well. Your trust in Jesus. And we're going to get to that because he talks about pistis or faith again later. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw, so now all of a sudden it stopped. This, uh, she's healed, and now he continues on to the ruler's daughter. He came to this ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. This is in the Mishnah or the Talmud or the first part of the Talmud, which is just a set of rabbinical writings that dictated Jewish tradition, okay? And that in the Mishnah, it, it was written that even the poorest in Israel would hire no less. Okay, so even if you are the poorest in Israel, you are to hire no less than two flutes and one wailing woman during a time of mourning. This is, this is, it's, it's, that's what it is. And being a ruler, there is no doubt he probably did hire a crowd joined with relatives and friends. And there's no doubt they were making quite the commotion. And you can imagine this place. People are wailing. People are crying. Flutes and dirges are playing. And in verse 24, he comes in and he goes, go away. For the girl is not dead but sleeping. <laughs> Excuse me. But sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus moves to the location of the dead girl. And seeing all the mourners, he tells them to go away. Why? Because it's not right there be mourning for someone sleeping. It's not right that there be mourning for someone sleeping. This induces laughter in the crowd 
because now there you see this this the story is like there's a dramatic shift in disposition from going from mourning and wailing to laughing that's how ridiculous Jesus' statement seemed to them from wailing to ruffling Jesus didn't even see this girl and he comes in saying this stuff now was she really sleeping though obviously not you know people were preparing their funeral and the burial now that's what the whole wailing in the in the process of preparing for the burial uh, that's where the people are wailing and crying and there's playing of the flutes and the dirges the girl wasn't just taking a nap and Jesus was there to give her her wake-up call that's not what it was but Jesus goes go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping and then verse 25 but when the crowd had been put outside that is huge crowd has been now put outside he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose the crowd now having been put outside all the funeral preparations would have all together have come to a stop Jesus takes the girl's hand touching a, a dead body would have meant you are also unclean but Jesus takes the hand of the girl and the girl was raised these two elements are here in the story blood and life blood and life either whether it's slowly drained or it's completely gone if you were to come in contact with someone either like the hemorrhaging woman or the dead girl you would have been unclean you know why because if something is dead and you touch it that death comes on you if something has a disease and you touch it that disease comes upon you that's why you don't touch it touching a dead body would have meant that you were unclean touching or having someone touch you that was already unclean would have made you unclean but we are shown here that by Jesus's touch it's not Jesus who becomes unclean but the unclean that becomes clean and who has the power to do that who in the world has the power to do that instead of becoming unclean when you touch something unclean when something unclean touches you that unclean becomes clean In verse 27 we went to verse 26 and all the people knew about this and people the whole town heard about it all in the district and we'll see this later on repeated in verse 27 Jesus passes on from the ruler's house and two blind men followed him and they were crying aloud have mercy on us son of David Moving on from the ruler's house, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. This is the first time this messianic title, son of David, is used. And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't immediately respond. Every single other instance we've seen so far, Jesus immediately responds, right? My daughter is sick. My servant is sick. I'm a leper. You can make me clean. But this time, he doesn't. And we see all throughout his journey, until he gets to the house that he was staying at, they are following him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. 
have mercy, meaning take pity on us, son of David. It's a plea. Who do you say have mercy on me too? It's a plea to a royal or political being like a king. Have mercy on me. You would say that to someone who has kingly authority over you, son of David. But here's the real question. What kind of king would have the power to make a blind person see? No king would have that power. And in fact, even in the Bible, the giving of sight is a divine activity. Exodus chapter 4, 11, Psalm 146, 8. But it also has a messianic significance. Isaiah chapter 29, 18, 35, 5, 42, 7. And it answers the question, who can give sight to the blind? Who can give sight to the blind? In Exodus chapter 4, 11, uh, the Lord says to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Sight is the work of the Lord. There was never an instant, instance outside of Jesus that the giving of sight was shown in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And you can argue maybe Acts chapter 9 was Saul of Tarsus, but that was of a different order. But Jesus does this. And we're going to go back to it, but Jesus doesn't do anything until he gets to this destination. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what's going on. Why doesn't he do that? In verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Once Jesus gets to his destination, he addresses him. We don't know how far it was or how long that destination was, but it was a long destination. And some scholars think that maybe it was Jesus wanted to test the faith of the blind men. Perhaps, perhaps. But if you didn't have any faith, you wouldn't have been crying, Son of David, have mercy on us in the first place. So I don't really think it was that. Until he got to the destination, then he addresses them. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. And in verse 29, he touches their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be done to you, or be it done to you. According should not be taken as if it was a measurement. According is to what faith was pointing to, okay? The word according means what faith was pointing to. A lot of people may think that according to your faith, be it done to you. So it was about big faith or little faith, lots of faith, small faith. So Jesus was increasing the faith according to the, uh, in the journey. This is not what um, the word according in the Greek talks about at all. According means what's the object of the faith? Do you trust in Jesus? You know, we all live by faith. We all have faith at all times. And if someone says something, then you could either have faith that this person will be able to do it or not. Like if I take this water bottle just like, and you, I can ask you the question, do you have faith that if I wanted to, I could crush this water bottle? And you could either say yes or no. You could be like, yes, this water bottle is very flimsy. Or no, it looks like you haven't been hitting the gym, so you don't seem like you'd be good enough to crush this water bottle. Whatever the case is, 
we always act and live with this faith. But Jesus is now going, do you believe that I can do it? He is anchoring that faith, okay? It's not about how big the faith is, how small the faith is. It's about where your faith is anchored. In Luke 17, the apostles go to the Lord. Lord, increase our faith. And this is what Jesus says back to them. If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And people always think, oh, yeah, all you need is to grow this small amount of faith. Do you know how ridiculous that picture is? Have you held a mustard seed? Imagine this. You take, uh, I, don't, I don't think we're familiar with mustard seeds all the time, but let's say you're eating a poppy seed uh, bagel or muffin, whatever it is, you take one of those poppy seeds, and you're like, if I had faith this big, I could say to this tree, be uprooted and go into the sea, and it would do it. Do you think, do you think Jesus was talking about the amount of faith here? Or was he talking about the object of the faith? In Hebrews 11, it defines faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. The question isn't if you have enough faith. The question is, do you even have faith? That's the question. It's not if you have enough faith. It's do you have faith at all? It's not the quantity of your faith. It's the object of your faith that Jesus is pointing to. And when they go, yes, Lord, Lord, kudios, you are Lord, then their eyes were open. And this is what's really interesting. Jesus sternly warns them. This sternly warn is a word that's similar to rebuke. That, that's really strong words. That's like a command. That's not like, see that no one knows. It's like, ah, don't tell anybody, all right? That's not the attitude in which Jesus told these blind men not to tell people. He sternly warned, like a rebuke. If you're rebuking someone, see that no one knows about this. That's the kind of attitude that sternly warned would have shown. It's a tone that would have been surprisingly serious. And we also saw this in chapter 8 when he tells the leper, don't do anything else but go to the priest first. Don't tell anybody, go to the priest first. But in verse 31 it goes, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. You know, in our way of thinking, the way we want to see things, why wouldn't you want people to know you're doing miracles? You know, if I could heal someone, especially something that has never been done before, and heal someone who's blind. And when I went to Egypt, I went to this, um, they have this huge garbage dump where everybody sends the garbage, and there's a community that lives in the garbage and so they sift through the garbage, and that's what they do all their lives, and they find out what, they rummage through it, and they find out what they can use and eat, and that's how they live and sell. So as I was going up, oh man, that smell destroyed me. But, you know, it's amazing. Like, you get used to the smell. But there was a Christian community there. And in that community, we were able to go and pray in Egypt. And um, there was a blind child there in his eyes were just white. Um, and, you know, it was an incredibly sad thing to see. And they were asking for people to pray for him. And you see that blindness is not just a small thing. It's a, a very serious but permanent 
disease or predicament or some situation that you're in, a malady, right? But this is what Jesus does. So if you are able to do this, like let's say I went to Egypt and I was able to heal that blind boy's uh, eyes through prayer, You'd be like, go tell people it was Jesus that did it, you know. Go tell people, you know, be humble about it. You don't even have to tell my name. My name is Joe Schmo for all you care, right? Or something to that effect. But, you know, go t- but Jesus, him, he goes, don't tell anybody, and very sternly. And then they go away anyway. And his, and his fame would spread through all the district, just like before with uh, the ruler's daughter. Why wouldn't you? Mark kind of records why. In Mark chapter 1, verse 45, when people would tell other people and his fame would increase because of the healings, Mark chapter 1, verse 45 says, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And yet those people still came to him from everywhere. But I want to say, Jesus did not want people focusing on the miracles that he performed but rather the message he proclaimed and the death that he was going to die. Jesus did not want people focusing on the miracles he performed, but rather the message he proclaimed and the death he was going to die. And the same is true today. God would rather that we be focused on the miracle of salvation through Jesus Christ instead of focusing on anything else. God would rather we be focused on the healing miracle of salvation through Jesus Christ than any other thing. In verse 32, as they were going away, now we can see if in light of Mark chapter 145, they couldn't, probably couldn't stay there any longer. He couldn't do what he normally did. I mean, if you could hear blind people, then I assume and imagine a ton of people are going to come your way. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. As they were going away, other people are now now bringing this demon-oppressed man. Because of this demon oppression, he wasn't able to speak. He was mute. A lot of people think muteness is also caused by deafness. So there was a lot of things already wrong with him. And the word that's used in this translation is demon-oppressed. So this person has been oppressed, and now all his faculties are not with him. In verse 33, Jesus just cast him out. And when, the Jesus, uh, when Jesus had casted the demon out, the mute man began to speak, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Again, just like the other two buns that we saw, in this final bun, we see that all the people marveled at the end of the three miracles. But there is an addition to close off this part. It's verse 34. But the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And it just ends. It just ends right there. There is an element, though, that's introduced here that wasn't in the other two buns. And it's this sentence that closes out the section of Jesus' authority. And I was talking with Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul, I really had a hard time uh, thinking of a name for this sermon. Because if you remember, the first bun, the first sermon was called Jesus' authority. And when Pastor Paul spoke on the second bun, he called it the authority of Jesus. So it's like this third section should be Jesus with authority. I don't know what to call it. But we call, I wanted to call it Jesus, son of David. Because here, this is the first time, even though this is about Jesus' authority, 
the first time we see the son of David, this messianic title introduced. Now, he didn't want people to know this because this came with a lot of baggage. People, even Jewish people today, believe the Messiah has some kind of political connotation to it. That means the Messiah, or the Mashiach, would have a political reign. The kingdom that he would be bringing is a political kingdom. And so that's what people, even back then in Jesus' time, believed as well. So even when he refers to himself, he doesn't call him son of David or son of God. He calls himself son of man. But there is something that we can't miss then. or We we cannot miss this. Jesus has authority. But what kind of authority? And this is what people were marveling at. Like, who can do this? Who can heal blind people? Like, this has never been seen before in history. And it's never been seen again after. Like, who can heal blind people? Who can cast out demons easily like this? Who can raise the dead as if they were just sleeping? Who can do that? So people will start to marvel. Who is this man? And then there is opposition that comes in. He casts out demons because he's the prince of demons. The more you have Jesus revealed to you, you will either love him, submit to him, or hate him and rebel against him. Either you will be for him or you are against him. He's like, ah, that's, you're being a little too extreme black and white here, aren't you? Are you serious? And I'm saying yes. Why is that? Because either he is Lord over your life or he is not Either he is Lord over your life or he is not. But what if, what if his claim is Lord? What if by doing these miracles, his authority is now being shown, he's claiming lordship and you don't want it? You just don't want it. What would you do? You'd rebel against it. You'd hate it. There would be an emotion rising. Why is this happening? But Jesus is what we believe. And this is what our Christians have confessed throughout the millennia. (laughs) Jesus is fully man. He touched people. He's not an apparition or a ghost. He touches each person, heals. And this healing isn't just gradual. It's not psychological. It's not a step-by-step process. It's immediate and it is complete, meaning he's fully God. He is fully man, and he is fully God. Only God could perform the miracles that Jesus did. And only man could come and have, actually have touched, because we, we, we know it, right? God is spirit. But there he is, right in front of your face, touching people and doing things only God can do. That's why we believe Jesus is fully man, And fully God. This is a mystery, but also this is the truth that we have been shown. And you will be given all this weird information in today's time. Like Jesus wasn't God. Or another one is Jesus wasn't man. Or another freaky one that that I've been hearing these days 
is sometimes Jesus was a man and then sometimes Jesus was a God. So when he did this, he would and transform into a man and and then transform into God. This is not this is not true. Jesus and he's not like some mix of God and man. In one person was the fullness of man and fullness of God. This is Jesus Christ. And because of this, we know that his sacrifice is what God accepted. And that is why when we believe in him, that perfect life and his sacrifice gets imputed or given to us. This is the seventh part of our confessional statement in our church. We believe that moved by love and obedience to his father, the eternal son became human. The word became flesh, fully God and fully human being. One person in two natures. The man Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, was conceived through the miraculous agency of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He perfectly obeyed his father, lived a sinless life, performed miraculous signs, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven. And as the mediatorial king, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, exercising in heaven and on earth all of God's sovereignty. And he is our high priest and righteous advocate. We believe that by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconciled to God all those who believe. This is the Lord Jesus Christ that we have come to faith in. Do you see how amazing this is? Do you see how amazing this is? This could not have been possible humanly in any way, shape, or form. But God comes to us. His word comes to us, takes on flesh. And now we see and know and worship him as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what gathers the believers. Our worship of our king there is no other way there is no other way to salvation except through jesus christ and so this is what we preach and this is what we share and this is what we tell people this is the good news because while there was no other way humanity had been continually destroying themselves left to their own devices destruction chaos pain hate and ultimately death would come god would intercede and that intercession is jesus the mediatorial king is jesus and now if you have faith in him behold the interjection behold you are taken out from that path of destruction and now you are now put into the kingdom of god where there is peace where there is joy where there is satisfaction where there is eternity and life this is what christ has done for us and this is what the holy spirit does in your life to have you believe it changes your heart from what was once rebellious and what was once enjoying sin what you believe to be autonomy 
I just want to live the way I want to live. And you see yourself not getting happier, but angrier, sadder, more bitter, more upset. But you see, when Jesus comes and takes lordship over our lives, there is joy, there is peace, there is fulfillment. And when we go to Jesus and we say, Son of David, you are the king. I submit myself to you. I put my trust in you. Jesus goes, that's the anchor of your faith, and I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to do what I do. What does God do? When he touches something, what happens? It brings life. When he touches something, what happens? It brings healing. When he touches something, something that's never been done before, that only God can do, we get to see. We get to see. We get to see. Once we were blind, but now we see something that we could have never done before. All the philosophers, all the theologians, all the thinkers of the past, they knew. They weren't, they, you didn't have to be Christian. Socrates, Plato, they all knew there is no way the world or the, the, the lowercase form could have ever known anything outside of what it is. Because the world is dark and black and has destruction, there is no way out. You can't save yourself from destruction in destruction. You only have destruction. So even they knew something from outside has to come in. This is 300 years before. And then we see that actually happening. Even secular thinkers know there needs to be something outside. And we see this perfect revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And this is who God is saying Where's your faith anchored to? Where's your hope anchored to now? Do you have faith? And that's the question he's asking you. Do you have faith? You know, like in what? You mean just my predicament here? You know, I have this illness. Is it just this predicament? And the answer is no. Do you have faith means do you trust in him for all of your life? Every single aspect. Do you submit every single part of your being to him? That's what faith is. And this is what the Holy Spirit is calling on you to do. Only then, only then, when you submit to God, you will see God doing this amazing, transforming work in you. And you will see your life changed. What was once angered and hardened start to melt away and soften. And you know what? The world, we see, God controls it. And I'm okay with that. I'm joyful for that. I'll end with this. I went to um, a a, a store the other day. And um, I knew about the store. I shopped there a few times. But these days, I was like, wow, you know. I could buy a whole ensemble for like 26 bucks. I love this store. So I go, $26 $26 to people. Um, but I was at the store and I went to the cashier. I was like, hey, how are you doing? And the cashier goes, and she was surprised because she's like, oh, someone's asking how I'm doing. And she goes, I- I'm trying. I'm trying to get by. It's, it's rough these days. I was like, it is rough these days, isn't it? Isn't it the saying of not just today, but it's the saying of people and humanity at all times? It's rough these days. People always think the day today is rougher than every other day. And I, I think that it's, it's a sign of a little bit of a narcissism because we think like our day is the worst day ever. Um, it's not really true. 
Um, but it is tough. I'm not saying it's not tough. But this toughness is there because of something. It's there because of sin. It's there because we rejected God's law and we want to live autonomously alone. We rebelled against our Creator. He said, I'm Lord. And we said, nope, I don't want you. No. And when Jesus has come down to the world, he's offering us a chance now to repent and say, I tried it my way. It was horrible. It did not go the way I wanted to, and it, it's getting worse day by day. And in, even in our desperation, if we cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. He has mercy on us. We can know all the wrong things. Like we're not, we not even have the perfect theology, and like our, our living might not be right. We might not even follow well. But when we cry out in mercy, when we cry out in faith, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's God who has mercy. And this is the call for those that are listening today. If you're hearing the word, know that God is the one that can heal and only God. The call is immediate and effectual. You have to respond now. There is no tomorrow. There's no next week, no next year. If he says repent and be baptized, repent now. Repent now. Say, God, I have tried to live my life on my own, and I know that this is a terrible thing because it causes you not just pain but offense. This is offense against the king, the creator of all creation. And so I repent and I give my life to you now. And God, being the merciful God, will receive you into his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much noise these days. And in this noise, people are saying, believe me, trust in me, trust in this, have faith in this rather than what we need to have faith and trust in. Our faith and trust must, must be anchored in you, our Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a, a work in us, a transforming work in us, so that those places that have been hardened in our lives because of just the dread, just the hardships that we have gone through, we want to acknowledge that only you can soften it. And we ask in your mercy that you will soften our hearts. And as we cry out to you, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, son of David. Save your people. Save those that cry out to you from the depths of their heart right now. Let's take this time to pray. And all of us, whether we have been going to church a long time or a short time, we need to acknowledge that we need to continue to lift up our lives to the Lord. You may have been going to a church for a long time, but still does not exclude you from the commandment to take up your cross daily and follow him. And so just as the prayer was prayed today, meditate. Lift up your heart to the Lord and ask him if there is anything that is unpleasing that you would be able to lay it down at the foot of the cross unpleasing to God that you will lay it down at the foot of the cross so that you can fully submit to him and walk in the joy that the Savior has prepared for you. Let's pray.